From the archives of the East Oregonian, we bring you the murder of Sheriff Till Taylor. A hundred years later to the day, we'll take you through the sheriff's story, the events leading up to his murder, and the manhunt that ensued for the men responsible. I'm your host, Alex Castle, and I'm joined by our producer, Ben Lonergan. On our last episode, we left you with Umatilla County Sheriff's deputies following Jack Rathy after he reportedly demanded food from a farmhouse near Gibbon. Reading from that day's East Oregonian, Search about Gibbon last night for a man thought to be Jack Rathy failed to bear fruit, but work was resumed early this morning in hopes that the lone man would be captured. Officers handling the manhunt felt confident last night that the man is Rathy, for similar evening appearances by the same man have been made twice before. Redoubled efforts are being made today to take him. Early the morning of July 30th, 1920, another report pinned Rathy at Ryan Gulch, where he was said to again be demanding food. The report was phoned to Earl McEnroe and his posse led by bloodhounds, who were all just about two hours behind Rathy at that point. But strengthened by his recent thefts of food, Rathy was able to stay on the mountain trail for 10 miles while the posse stayed in pursuit. With authorities feeling they were closing in on Rathy as the first fugitive to be captured, the men hunting him were given strict orders to bring him in alive in order to interrogate him and possibly learn of the locations of the others. But back in Pendleton, the national news media descended on the city like never before. As Ernest L. Crockett wrote in his book, The Murder of Till Taylor, headline stories of the extended chase of the murderers were carried in all the newspapers of the Northwest. Some papers assigned special correspondence to Pendleton for extra coverage of the news. Pendleton itself was in the throes of wheat harvest preparation. There was a shortage of men to aid in this work because from every store and place of business, one or more men were members of working posses. The morning and evening newspapers published every scrap of information available. Returning posse men brought back individual stories, which soon found their way across the back fences. But pressure was mounting in these Pendleton offices. A constant crowd of men packing the rooms and corridors outside forced the placing of a door guard to limit entrance to those with business of the manhunt to report. Yet the morning reports were restoring confidence in the search for Sheriff Jinx Taylor. A campfire was found with flour spilled nearby next to some wet tea leaves and an empty can of corn in the area where Union County Sheriff Lee Warnock and his posse were searching. And they were growing more and more confident that they were drawing closer to Jim Owens and Neil Hart. Warnock posse had been without sleep for three days. Their feet were blistered and swollen, and their faces and arms scratched and cut from the rough going in the underbrush. Weary almost beyond the physical ability to keep up the pursuit, Warnock's men nevertheless fought slowly upward, following the tribal trackers and the hounds. Hoping for success at any time, and also knowing that their quarry might also be exhausted, they were sustained by the excitement of imminent capture. A call had gone out to a companion posse on the Union County side of the mountains to close in toward the summit. Minute directions were given, pinpointing the place to cover. Sheriff Warnick was directing both groups while accompanying the posse on the Umatilla side. His messages were relayed by runner to telephone stations, then on to Pendleton. From Pendleton, they were phoned to Legrand and then carried by messenger up the mountain to the posse on the other side. But Owens and Hart were determined to get away, and while the bloodhounds were on their scent and leading posses of men their way, the two criminals waded through Meacham Creek and washed away the scent, costing the posse valuable time in their pursuit. Eventually, Owens and Hart managed to emerge over the top of the Blue Mountains, and after days of trying, they were finally descending into the Grand Ronde Valley. As for Lewis Anderson and Richard Patterson, the two were still struggling, facing sickness from a lack of food, though a couple from Portland inadvertently helped them with that. 
After sneaking past 15 men at Meacham Station the day before, the two met a man and woman on a side road that night. The two were just getting up, and they were from the Portland area. The man told the fugitives that they were up in the mountains for his wife's health. We're up for our health, too. It ain't healthy in the valley, Anderson said back, according to Crockett. Evidently, the campers had not heard of the manhunt, and they gave Patterson and Anderson each a bacon sandwich, the first real food they had had in more than four days. Once they finished eating, Patterson took a rifle from the camper, which had been standing by his car, unloaded it, and told the man he would find it about a half mile down the road. man said he didn't care who they were. He was just minding his own business. No report of this was made at the time, but was told much later, according to Crockett. When on July 30th, 1920, Patterson and Anderson stayed the path between Meacham and Camilla, where the huckleberries were ripe and in season. The two feasted on these berries for more energy as two cars suddenly pulled up, holding armed men, as they began to exchange news with an earshot of the two hidden criminals. As they listened from the trees, they learned pieces of what had taken place over the last six days. Lindgren had been captured on the first day. Rathy was being tracked from Gibbon, and jumping on another train would be futile, as every single one of them was carrying armed men on the lookout for the fugitives. At this point, the two again considered giving themselves up, but they didn't know at the time what had happened to Lindgren when he was brought into custody and feared they'd be killed on the spot if they surrendered. Meanwhile, while the search continued behind Rathy, he was able to make it all the way to Somerville in Union County that night. While Owens and Hart crossed through a meadow at dusk that night when they came upon a French sheepherder who had just cooked dinner. Holding the man at gunpoint, the two took his food and kept him under watch as they took turns sleeping through the night. While the five fugitives remained on the run, not once during the six days ending Friday night had the pace of the chase lessened and night or day and all of Pendleton held to its angry mood. That there had been no gunplay accidents and only four or five shots exchanged during the whole manhunt to this point was nothing short of marvelous. It would be so easy to make mistakes when so many men were in the woods. Gradually, as the hunt concentrated in with experienced men in charge, the danger of error was reduced, but everyone anticipated a final shooting before the murderers were captured. On our next and final episode, we'll take you through the events of July 31st as a manhunt comes to an end and the five fugitives face the community thirsty for justice. Thirsty for justice.